it, it's a great pleasure, in, in a sense, to, to be here and uh, be part of um, one of Sir Thomas Gresham's great legacy projects, uh, the kind of legacy projects that had his wife, Lady Anne, sadly shaking her head at, uh, at, at various points. I mean, certainly once uh, Sir Thomas Gresham died in uh, 1579. The first project was the Royal Exchange. Uh, it, it lasted, by my calculation, one century and, and about three months uh, before it was uh, destroyed by the Great Fire in September um, 1666. And I want to end uh, right at the very end uh, with, a, with a rather dramatic quotation, a narrative um, of, of that uh, moment of destruction. But I'd better tell you about the building uh, before then, before we, we get to uh, the end. This isn't it. I thought I'd, I, I thought, I thought I'd begin with, with a trick uh, slide, just to see who's paying attention uh, uh, at this point in the, uh, in, in the early evening. This is Antwerp, the Antwerp Bourse, the new Bourse, the new exchange um, in Antwerp. And in a sense, if we want to understand uh, the Royal Exchange, and I think if we want to understand uh, London in the 16th century and that kind of extraordinary uh, growth of the city, certainly in terms of its population, in terms of its built space, but very definitely in terms of its kind of mercantile heft uh, and, and clout, we need to begin with what, before London, uh, was the leading uh, financial centre, the commercial powerhouse of North, uh, northern, northwestern uh, Europe in its day. Antwerp was a, a, a fantastic uh, city, uh, made rich by precious metals from southern Germany, uh, by English cloth. This is where uh, English merchants went to uh, went to trade. Uh, cloth in the great uh, Antwerp fairs, and it was a great entrepot uh, for northern Europe. Uh, the kind of the, the, the place where merchants went to buy uh, their art and their fine goods, coming all the way in across the Mediterranean uh, from as far as Asia uh, along the Silk Road. So Antwerp is really a starting point um, in so many ways, and I've always loved uh, a, a description from the late uh, 16th century um, of, of life in the new Bourse, the new exchange in Antwerp. Uh, a confused sound of all languages was heard there, and one saw a party-coloured medley of all possible styles of dress. In short, a small world wherein all parts of the great world were united. And that sort of captures the essence and the the, the, the power and the vibrancy of the, the Antwerp Bourse. And I think it's that power and vibrancy that Thomas Gresham, uh, by the 1560s, wanted to bring to London. It, it, this is a lecture, in a sense, about one building in London. But in many ways, it's, it's a European um, story, uh, a story of, of, of emulation um, in, in so many ways. Early Tudor London had no equivalent to this building uh, to the to the Bourse. Uh, th th there was no purpose-built space where 
London merchants could conduct their business. Well, London merchants and foreign merchants, those conducting business uh, in, the, in the streets. And they literally were doing it um, in the streets, on Lombard Street, um, in the wind and the rain and the, the snow, in all weathers, uh, no cover um, at all. The other great financial centre um, of early Tudor London was St Paul's Cathedral. And that's where, by long tradition and practice, early modern Londoners went to um, settle their debts. Debts were paid at the font, uh, at the font stone uh, in Paul's church, St Paul's Cathedral, of course, a stone's throw to the south uh, just from here. So we're very close, in a sense, to those two um, financial, in different ways, but financial centres um, of uh, early modern, early Tudor London. Uh, St Paul's Cathedral, a stone's throw, and uh, Lombard Street, a different stone's throw in a slightly different eastern uh, direction, but still not very far away. There's a sense that Londoners wanted their city to have a little bit more um, of a little bit, bit more clout uh, than, than that uh, in, in financial terms. Uh, there, there was an aspiration, I think a building aspiration, um, on the part of the city corporation and certain um, very well-heeled uh, merchants um, from the 1530s. And of course these merchants spent very much most of their time um, in, uh, in Antwerp, that's where their businesses were based. So it's a city with which they were um, familiar. Back to St Paul's, because St Paul's sort of comes in and out of focus, I think, in this, in this story a little bit over the next few minutes. St Paul's is important in a sense because of, uh, because of worship, because of uh, religion, also because of uh, money, but it's a social space as well, um, a place where Londoners met, uh, talked, promenaded, begged, uh, and also read books and bought books, the great booksellers of Tudor London, um, generally had their shops and their stalls around Paul's churchyard, and also the sermon place of London, uh, Paul's Cross. The first efforts to build an exchange for London, in a sense to kind of replicate uh, what Antwerp was able to provide for uh, the merchants of Northern Europe, was actually the project of Sir Richard Gresham. Sir Thomas Gresham's father. In a sense, there is a kind of Gresham story and a Gresham um, continuity uh, to this. And that was when Sir Richard Gresham, who in his own right was an extraordinarily um, successful uh, mercer and uh, moneylender, uh, was Lord Mayor in 1538. And he presented to uh, Henry VIII's great minister, Thomas Cromwell, uh, a plat plans drawn out to make what he called a goodly bourse in Lombard Street for merchants to repair unto. And he estimated to Thomas Cromwell in 1538 that uh, he supposed it will cost £2,000 or more uh, for the honour, every penny worth it for the honour of the king. But for whatever reason, that plan came to nothing. But in a sense, the seed was sown. I think it was sown at a relatively kind of early point. It's a seed that, you know, germinates um, over, over time, 30 or so years uh, later. 
The key character, of course, in all of this is Thomas Gresham, Sir Thomas uh, Gresham. And here he is as a young man in his middle 20s, in what I think is a rather extraordinary portrait. It's pretty rare at this point, and, and we're, you know, in the middle 1540s, uh, it's pretty rare really for any merchant in London to have a portrait at all. Later merchants, yes. Early Tudor merchants, no. And even then, it tends to be head and shoulders. They, they, they tend to be modest uh, portraits, modest scale. This, I think, is astonishing. It's by, we have to be pretty sure, I think, a, a, an Antwerp um, artist at a time when the young Thomas Gresham uh, in the later middle later 1540s, early 1550s, was effectively in charge of the Gresham's uh, business operations in the Low Countries, based practically next door uh, to the new Bourse in Antwerp. Uh, and it is, as I say, an extraordinary portrait for um, a young man. He's in merchant's black, an extremely uh, expensive colour uh, to dye in the 16th century. You know, it's a modest kind of look, but in fact, you know, it, it, it shouts wealth and, uh, and, and, and comfort and, and, and riches, um, and it's full length. This is the style of painting that, that you know, we would find for a Habsburg prince uh, and not a young London merchant. So there's just a sense in which even this very young man, uh, now with a lot of responsibility by this point, you know, running really a whole family's operations, his father's business, his uncle's business um, in Antwerp. In a real sense that this young man uh, wanted to make a splash. There's a, a real um, sort of ambition uh, to it. From 1551, Gresham was effectively managing also the English crown's considerable debt um, in and around Antwerp, the great banking houses of Europe in the 16th century, families like the Fugger and the Velser had uh, major offices in, in Antwerp, and the young-ish uh, Gresham, the 30-something Gresham, um, spent a lot of his time from the reign of Edward VI managing, massaging uh, crown debt, doing deals in the new bourse, dealing with the financiers, attending to interest rates, and so on. His ambition was to, you know, get that debt down uh, as quickly uh, as, as possible. He was knighted in 1559. At that point, we have Sir Thomas um, Gresham. Effectively a merchant, but primarily from the 1550s, a mercantile diplomat in, in many ways. In the 1560s, one of... Thomas Gresham's factors, his business agents, the tough Richard Clough, uh, wrote to Thomas, this is 1561, that I will not doubt but to make so fair a bourse in London as the great bourse is in Antwerp. It's a very long letter, and at the end of that letter, Clough gets rather kind of excited and frustrated that the city fathers of London, you know, have not pulled their finger out and have, you know, in a sense, done what London should be doing, which is aspiring to, uh, you know, sort of position and status in the bigger financial world. And it's Clough who, in a sense, sort of voices 
that um, ambition. And who then, as far as we can tell, does absolutely nothing about it at all. But in a sense, it's a kind of continuing uh, germination of an idea that had been, you know, with the Greshams, in the Gresham family for um, a number of years. The key point, the key date, I'm sure this is something that John Guy will, um, will talk about um, uh, in, in his lecture, is the death of, Richard, uh, of Thomas Gresham's heir, uh, son and heir, Richard Gresham, in May 1563. Quite what precisely the relationship was between the death of Richard and the, the first tangible um, efforts to, uh, to, to, to bring the, uh, the Royal Exchange for London about is, is, is a little um, unclear. But there's some meeting, at least, um, in, in the 1560s between you know, what appears to be the direction in which uh, Sir Thomas Gresham's mind is moving and also a kind of collective will um, on the part of the Court of Aldermen in the city to make a move in Thomas Gresham's direction, you know, finally to do something um, about founding um, a bourse. In January 1564, Gresham made his offer, and the deal was that he would build the bourse, uh, the City of London would find the space uh, and, and level whatever was there. Um, in preparation for um, the project. And, of course, the, the site of Gresham's Exchange is precisely the, the site of the latest um, in, uh, incarnation uh, of the exchange as it sits there now, just south of Threadneedle Street. Gresham, I think, was seeking to uh, make, at this point, uh, a, a splash, you know, to, to, to show his ambition to establish himself as um, a great patron and a civic benefactor. And as I said right at the beginning, you know, it's very much, I think, a, a legacy uh, project, quite consciously, from the beginning. And this is Gresham in the 1560s. This is uh, Gresham uh, probably very much actually at the point um, of uh, the decision, the, the, the first steps and the first stages in the building of the exchange. He laid himself the first brick on the 7th of June 1566. In November 1567, so just over a year later, uh, the same was covered with slate and shortly after fully finished. And the words belong to John Stowe, the great uh, antiquary um, of London. Uh, and, you know, so it's a fairly sort of quick building project, really, um, especially for a, 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 a huge uh, project, a, 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 a large building. The design was Gresham's, uh, and it was consciously European, uh, and it looked very specifically to Antwerp. Uh, Gresham recruited a, a Flemish master builder, and Flemish bricklayers, and they are brought over to, uh, to build the exchange, uh, much to the annoyance of, uh, of London's bricklayers who picketed the site. Uh, so, uh, so that there were, there were you know, um, difficulties, you know, some things never change. Uh, and uh, big building projects are controversial, especially when you get in uh, foreign labour. 
It's Gresham's Exchange. It became the Royal Exchange, sort of in a formal way, really, um, in 1571. Business begins in the December of 1568, and then in 1571, a few years later, um, Elizabeth I um, visits. She has a, 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 a great meal, dinner with uh, Gresham <clears throat> in his mansion on uh, Bishop's Gate. And then, again, the, the descriptionist is, is John Stowe's. Uh, Her Majesty, returning through Cornhill, entered the bourse on the south side, and after that she had viewed every part thereof above the ground, especially the pawn, which was richly furnished with all sorts of the finest wares in the city. She called this, caused the same bourse by a herald and a trumpet to be proclaimed the Royal Exchange, and so to be called from thenceforth and not otherwise. Now, the reference to the pawn, which seemed to grab Elizabeth's attention particularly, is something to remember. I'll talk about that in um, a few minutes' time. So here we have the building itself. And it is, as you can see, rather impressive. This is one um, view of it. As a description, which I think is rather fine and... and, and uh, you know, is, is better than I, I could do on my own, uh, quite frankly. Uh, 1576, description of the, the building. It is a quadrangle surrounded by three great walks or galleries, one above the other. The central aisle is where the merchants retire and shelter when it rains. It is six or seven paces wide and paved with black and white blocks of fine work. Around this alley, there are 36 great stone columns, each 12 feet high, set four paces apart. The heart of the exchange is the quadrangle, large enough to hold 4,000 merchants aside from the central walk. It is cobbled and is 80 paces long and 60 wide. Here the merchants stroll in fine weather and talk business at the times aforesaid. Times that I will explain in a minute or two. High on the facade, in the inner walls, all about the exchange, are 36 columns of jasper marble, set at 10 feet apart, and between them, niches in the facade in which to place figures of the kings and queens of England, those who have reigned since William the Conqueror, which are to be of bronze. Above the columns are to be painted flat the arms and names of the king, princes and lords of those times. I think the tenses there are interesting. You get a sense that there's still, you know, there's still a, a notion of work in progress here, that the exchange is still, uh, even in the middle 1570s, a bit of a work in progress. Contemporaries who visited it uh, said that it was a little bit smaller, just a little bit smaller uh, than the new Bourse in Antwerp. It had two routes in, north and south. The Antwerp Bourse um, had four routes in. But effectively, it's the same kind um, of space. And, and as you can hear from that description, it's built uh, on, on a grand scale uh, and no expense was spared. You just get a sense from the building materials. Um, you know, even those building materials that people could see uh, on, on the outside, that this is a building that was supposed to communicate wealth and uh, power. 
um, and to be very much kind of Gresham's stamp on things. Very neat in, in this image, and they are consistent in all the images we have of the exchange, are the uh, appropriate, of course, for the evening, the Gresham grasshoppers there, just at the, uh, just at the top. What I want to talk about in a few minutes' time is the exchange as a place of, of leisure. But we should talk about it really, uh, 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 think about it initially as a, as a place of, of business. There were two trading hours um, over the course of the, of the day. And these are the kind of formal trading hours. And I think we can assume that uh, lots of business was done outside these uh, formal hours. But nevertheless, two hour-long sessions, one between um, 11 o'clock in the morning and 12 noon, and then again between uh, 5 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the, the afternoon. Notionally, the exchange, the space, was divided up into uh, nations. English merchants occupied about half of the um, exchange. Uh, the French merchants had their space, Flemish and Walloon merchants, Italian merchants, Spanish merchants, and so on. Although I think these spaces were not fixed, and there was very probably a fair amount of uh, fluid uh, movement um, around. It, it was not a stock exchange. I think if we're thinking of stock exchanges, we're thinking uh, a few decades later, we're thinking uh, probably Amsterdam, the trading of shares uh, in the, the Dutch East India Company. The, the exchange, in a sense, was, was the exchange of, of, of mercantile business, and it, it was the business of bills of exchange, the principal means of moving money um, around mercantile Europe uh, in the middle to later years of the 16th century, drawn up and agreed contracts between individual merchants. So we have not only merchants, but we have the... Um, the, the notaries uh, drawing up the, um, the, the bills of exchange, um, merchants' factors, merchants' agents, posts, couriers coming in with, uh, with, with news, um, which makes the exchange, by the very, very nature of the, the business, like the Antwerp Bourse, um, a place of deals, a place of business, but also a place of movement and of uh, news as well, you know, if you wanted to hear what was going on. Um, across Europe, uh, you went to the exchange to keep up with the, the latest uh, news. It's important, though, to say that the exchange was open to all Londoners. It was open to uh, the elite, the non-merchant elite, gentry, the nobility, uh, who went to, to shop and promenade. Uh, it was certainly open to the poor, uh, who went to, to beg. And it was open to criminals uh, who saw opportunities to pick purses and uh, dupe and gull uh, the naive. There's a rather sort of nice uh, account of uh, the exchange in sort of moral terms, really, by an Elizabethan writer called John Payne, writing uh, in 1597. He said that uh, the exchange was a place where God's truth and equity were their direct contraries are sometimes spoken of to God's glory and to the service of Satan, you know, which rather sounds um, dramatic. And in a sense, the, 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 the exchange was, you know, some, something, of a, something of, a, of, of, a, of a stage. And there's at least one uh, late Elizabethan play, William Horton's Englishman, 
for my money, uh, which uses the setting of the exchange as part of the uh, drama. The play tells the story of uh, Pizarro, a rich Portuguese merchant and usurer who plans to marry his daughters against their wills to three wealthy foreigners. The daughters, however, love three honest Englishmen uh, who are in Pizarro's usurious clutches. Uh, and the Englishmen, you'll, you'll be amazed to find out, are able to outwit Pizarro uh, and uh, marry the daughters. Um, the important point here is that the, the, the exchange is a setting for at least uh, part of the play. So, you know, we have incidental roles by notaries, couriers, posts. We have news coming in. And one scene, it really actually sort of ends with the, the ringing uh, of the exchange bell, uh, which, is a, which is a rather uh, nice touch. I said a little bit, bit earlier that, that the exchange was public place and people went there for, um, for, for, for pleasure. And I think that's a really important uh, point to um, emphasise. The exchange stood for the making of money, but it also stood for the, um, the spending of money uh, too. I mentioned the pawn, uh, and it's a word that derived from uh, panned, uh, the kind of arcade or cloister that was used to sell cloth and other goods in the great Antwerp fairs. And it's a, an interesting other case of kind of transplanting something from Antwerp over to London. And the, the pawn, the, the shops of the pawn, occupied the upper levels uh, of the exchange. And one uh, visitor in the middle 1570s estimated that there were about uh, 150 stalls of uh, what he called rich merchandise, most notably all sorts of mercery. It's really sort of fine goods um, at, at, the, at the very top. But all kinds of specialist um, items there, haberdashery, uh, mercery, even suits of armour high-end uh, armour, uh, was sold um, at the exchange. It's clear that at the exchange, the rich uh, showed off their riches. And it's just as clear, too, that the poor were in evidence um, at the exchange. John Payne, 1597, wrote that the, the poor passed to and fro through the exchange, and, and I think it's, it's a place, again, almost a stage where we see those Elizabethan um, extremities of wealth and poverty um, put, uh, put side by side. We find dubious characters also uh, in the exchange. Elizabethans, elite Elizabethans, established, moneyed Elizabethans, uh, were terrified of crime and criminality and sense the existence of a, of a great criminal, uh, organised criminal under underworld. And, and it's clear that criminals preyed on uh, gentlemen uh, at, the, at the exchange. But also spies. There's a very nice example of, uh, of an Elizabethan uh, spy, well, a putative assassin um, of the Queen, Anthony Babington, who... You know, there's nothing like doing something in plain sight. Decided that he was going to give a grand dinner for his fellow conspirators uh, in, uh, in the July of 1586. And it's very close to the exchange at the Castle Tavern uh, next door because people went to the exchange to shop uh, and also uh, to eat. 
It was a place to advertise one's uh, professional credentials, you know, if you, if you had them. Uh, one Dr Langton, uh, a medical attendant to Sir Thomas Gresham, had his testimonial uh, pinned up in the exchange, uh, torn down by a rival physician uh, in 1573. And fair to say that, that, that he wasn't happy. And he got Sir Thomas to, to write on his uh, behalf. And it was also a place for uh, merchants to, if they needed to, um, air public grievances. One uh, Clement Draper in 1592, ruined, so he claimed, by the Earl of Huntingdon. And uh, he wrote rather mournfully, I protested publicly unto my creditors and spread the same protests upon the Royal Exchange and the gates of the city to manifest my wrongs and to crave liberty, poor thing. So in a sense, you know, he goes to the exchange to plead his case um, publicly. Now, if the exchange was a, a, a place of meeting and, and spending and conversation as much as it was a, a, a place of uh, spending money, uh, of making money, it was a place also of print. And there were uh, some interesting examples of, 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 I think, sort of forward-thinking, entrepreneurial um, Elizabethan booksellers who began to open shops uh, in the, the sort of elite uh, shopping end of the exchange uh, of the pawn. I think the best example here is, uh, is Thomas Hackett, um, who, uh, who sold his books at the shop, at his shop in the Royal Exchange at the sign of the Green Dragon. And he sold books that had to do with travel uh, and navigation, books that had a, a sort of mercantile um, focus. I think the exchange was never really ever going to rival the kind of book centre of London, which, which remained uh, Paul's churchyard. But, but nevertheless, uh, there was a market there and booksellers like Hackett knew it. One of the books that Hackett sold um, at his shop in the exchange in 1601 was the account of the second Dutch voyage um, out to the East Indies and of course the Dutch efforts to expand um, into Asia uh, at the beginning, right at the beginning of the uh, 17th century were you know movements and navigations that uh, English merchants uh, kept a very close eye on indeed. So in a sense you know we, we can say that the, the Royal Exchange uh, was, was European, but Europe at the turn of this new century, the beginning, right at the beginning of the 17th century, was already beginning, in a sense, to look out to the world beyond its own continent. And, and looking out to the East Indies was very much where it seemed to be at uh, from 1600. Here, in a sense, the story of exchange can take us in two directions, which sit for me, an interesting um, tension. The first is to look out uh, to, um, to the world, you know, to, to use the exchange as a way of, you know, beginning to kind of plot and map um, the ambition of London's merchants to get involved in ventures like the Levant Company, which in a sense was foundational uh, for the East India Company. Uh, you know, we, we, we can plot those points in that sort of direction. I don't think it's an accident, really, um, that by 1595 there was a floating uh, royal exchange. Uh, one of the two 
uh, of the most imposing of the Levant Company's uh, ships, 300 tons, a crew of 70 sailors. It's a floating Royal Exchange going to the far ends of the Mediterranean. The Levant Company became, as I say, one of the early foundations of the East India trade. So that sense of kind of looking outwards, you know, the kind of global story with the exchange is interesting. Intention with it, I think, is the domestic story, uh, which are, has to do with some of the tussles um, after the death of um, Sir Thomas Gresham uh, in some pained negotiations with his widow, um, Dame Anne, over the upkeep of the exchange. There's a rather sort of pained letter from Elizabeth's Privy Council in 1581, two years after Sir Thomas's uh, death, and the council felt that it was forced to write a, uh, a, a, a polite but firm letter to, to Dame Anne, you know, just to remind her of her obligations to uh, upkeep the, the exchange. The maintaining of that famous building in respect of the memory of her late husband, the executor of the same, and the discharge of the trust committed unto her. The Privy Council in 1581 had detected that one of the buildings, one part of the exchange had fallen down. Their estimate was that it would take probably about £20 to put it right, and they're having to, you know, slightly, politely, firmly apply the thumbscrews to Dame Anne to, uh, to cough up the money, which she seemed consistently reluctant to, to do. The end for the first Royal Exchange uh, came, of course, in the Great Fire of um, 1666. Again, by my calculation, this is a, a century and three months after Sir Thomas Gresham laid the first brick of it. I'm going to end by uh, reading Thomas Vincent's account of the destruction of the exchange as the, the fire raged through Corn Hill. Uh, you know, the, the, the exchange, I think, had remarkable origins and it had a remarkable um, and dramatic end. And it's really the kind of drama, the, the present tense drama that I love uh, about Vincent's uh, account. So here we go. Now, the flames break in upon Corn Hill that large and spacious street, and quickly cross the way by the train of wood that lay in the streets untaken away, which had been pulled down from houses to prevent its spreading. And so they lick the whole street as they go. They mount up to the top of the highest houses, they descend down to the bottom of the lowest vaults and cellars, and march along on both sides of the way with such a roaring noise as never was heard in the city of London. No stately building so great as to resist their fury. The Royal Exchange itself, the glory of the merchants, is now invaded with much violence. And when once the fire was entered, how quickly did it run round the galleries, filling them with flames. Then came downstairs, compasseth the walks, giving forth flaming volleys, and filleth the court with sheets of fire. By and by fall all the kings upon their faces, the statues of the 
kings of England. And the greatest part of the stone building after them, the founder's statue only remaining, with such a noise as was dreadful and astonishing. Thank you very much.